But there was a certain man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not to sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price that you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Man, I don't know about you, but this passage is one that makes me uh, super uncomfortable. It's super uncomfortable. It's one of those stories that I wish was not here in the Bible. If I were Luke and I were to sit down uh, and think of all the stories and all, all the things I had seen and heard over the years and then compile this book called Acts uh, so that the, the, the origins of the church could be told for centuries and centuries, I would have left this story out. I don't think I would have included this story. It's one that I'm tempted as I read through Acts just to skip over, not think much about, uh, certainly not take the time to teach it. Um, but at the same time, I think it's really important that we don't skip over uh, the hard and unpleasant stories in the Bible. Even if we don't ever make peace with the fact that uh, stories like this are in the Bible. And you'll discover that though I've spent uh, quite a bit of time processing this and, and trying to understand it, I still don't like it. I still wish that this were not here in the Bible. And my goal today is not to make you comfortable with it. Okay, it's not to, not to uh, you know, if you find yourself to be uncomfortable, it's not to just tell you that that's wrong and all of a sudden like that this story is in here. That's, that's not the goal. My goal is not to justify it. It's not to dismiss the unpleasantness of it either. Uh, my goal is to help us understand what God is trying to communicate to us through this passage, why it's here in this passage, why Luke included it uh, here in this book, why Luke included it in Acts. Okay, this is our, as we've said, I think a few weeks now, Acts is our origin story. Okay, this is the origin story of the church. And right here in the early days of the church, we have this story that Luke decided to put in here. Uh, and so we have to understand it. We have to um, process it and, and, uh, and look at it. And hopefully what will happen is we will come away with a better understanding of who God is, a better understanding of this worldwide Jesus community that's existed for uh, uh, centuries and centuries that we call the church, and a better understanding of ourselves. So what I want to do is I'm going to answer, hopefully, uh, try to answer two questions about this passage. They're simple questions. Number one, what is going on? Okay, what's going on here? Okay, what's happening in this passage? 
And the second question is, what does it mean? Okay, what does it mean? What is God trying to communicate to us through this story? Okay, so what's going on and what does it mean? Let's start with uh, the first there. What's going on in this passage? Well, in Acts 4, 32-37, I think it's really important that we include that in this story, even though we have a chapter division in between them. Uh, but we have Acts 32-37. We're given this beautiful picture of a, of a beautiful, loving, uh, diverse community of people that has formed as a result of Jesus as a result of his life, his death, and res- resurrection. There's this community of people that have formed around the reality that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is alive, and that he is working in and through Him, uh, through them. The passage says uh, that Hannah read that, that they were united in heart and mind. United in heart and mind, that they shared everything so that there was no needy person among them. They even have people like, like Barnabas selling their land and their homes and offering the money to meet the various needs in and around the community. I mean, can you imagine this? Can you imagine a community like this? Who wouldn't want to be a part of this? This sounds really great. It's amazing to think of the radical generosity and compassion that was going on in this community. This is not like something that, that we see very often and, and certainly wasn't like anything that they had seen at the time. This was new and unique and, and, and beautiful, really otherworldly, that people would care for each other and love one another and sacrifice for one another in this way. There was no need that was unmet, no person left out. But, okay, look at Acts 5.1 and right, that you have right in front of you. It says, but, okay, Luke throws this big uh, uh, disruptive but into the story, okay? And he says, all was not well, okay? All is not well in this community. Things are not as perfect as it would seem, but there was a certain man named Ananias. And you never want your name to come in this place uh, in the story, right? I mean, you, you get this perfect, beautiful picture. Everything's good and wonderful, uh, but there was Charlie, you know, but there was Brooks. Like you don't want your, your name to become, come in this place in the story after this big but that's going to tell us, you know, things are not going as well as, as you might think. So we have this beautiful picture of generosity, love, and unity, and life contrasted with this frightening story of selfishness, deceit, and death. Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, they sold some of their land and they brought a portion of that money from the sale to the community. And they said that the the money that they had offered was the full amount that they had received from the sale. But in reality, they held back some of the money for themselves. Peter, uh, the, the leader of this early church movement, somehow becomes aware of their deception and he confronts them on it. In verse five, it says, Ananias heard Peter's words and immediately fell to the floor and died. Three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, enters the room and the same thing happens to her. Now, I don't think there's any indication that Peter or any one person caused Ananias and Sapphira to die. We, I, I think we have to assume that God took their lives away from them. Okay, this is a case of, if, if you want to use the word, God smiting someone. And anytime God takes someone's life away, people like me, maybe people like you get very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. What about grace? Yeah, what about repentance and forgiveness? Where was the chance for that? 
I mean, this story happened right after Jesus's death on the cross and his resurrection. Wasn't that supposed to take care of things like this? Give them a chance to turn their lives around and do the right thing. Why would God do this? Why would he take someone's life away like this? It's very confusing and very uncomfortable. There's no way around it. Now, obviously, uh, if, if you believe that there's a God who created us and the whole world, and, and I think we all do here today, uh, we would have to assume that he could do this, right? God could do this, but we don't like to think about the fact that he would do this. Why would God do this? We like to think of God as a God of grace, of love, of mercy, the God reflected in the person of Jesus, We like to think about God in that way. We don't want to think of him as a God of anger, wrath, judgment, particularly in a case like this, which honestly seems uh, uh, like an overreaction. I mean, was this really the worst thing going on in the world at the time? Throughout the Bible, there are all sorts of stories of murder and adultery and all sorts of horrible things where God doesn't smite someone on the spot. He doesn't respond in this way. So why do it here? And, and here's how I've been processing this. And, and I don't know if this is going to be helpful for you. Again, my goal is not to get us to all of a sudden be comfortable with this story. But I've spent some time processing this, and and, and I think we need to start by asking the question, is it ever okay for someone to cause the death of someone else? Is it ever appropriate to cause someone's death? Well, according to our culture, and I think every culture that's ever existed, the answer is yes, right? There are times uh, and situations in which it is appropriate to take someone's life. For one, in America, in our country, we have 27 states, half the states that have the death penalty. Right, including ours here in Tennessee. We, uh, at least enough of us, are comfortable with the fact that our government, our state, can take someone's life as a form of punishment. Uh, Out of 195 countries a couple years ago, United States uh, uh, performed the eighth most prisoner executions. Okay, our country kills a lot of people. Okay, eighth most in the world. In times of war, we don't just kill enemy soldiers. We, but we accept the fact that innocent civilians will be killed as collateral damage. That, that happens in war. Now, we could have disagreements as to whether or not those things are appropriate. And there's, there's reasonable people that are okay with the death penalty and reasonable people that are not okay with it. Um, but what about things like self-defense? Okay, what about killing in the defense of others? What about the Hitlers and the Bin Ladens uh, of the world? What about ISIS fighters who plot... Uh, against the innocent here and abroad? What about an active shooter in a school? What about someone who breaks into your home and threatens your family? We all at some point have to admit that there is a time and a situation where taking someone's life is acceptable and even necessary. Whether it be ourselves doing it, whether it's law enforcement, military, or the government. So if it's appropriate for us as humans to take the life of another human with all our flaws and our biases and our moral failures, then there has to be times when it is appropriate or even necessary for God to take a life, right? There has to be times where it's okay. And then the question becomes, when? When is it appropriate for God to take someone's life? And unfortunately, I don't think that, that we can come to a clear answer on that. I don't think we'll all agree on that. Uh, And we may land in different places, but honestly, I don't really think it's our place to answer that question. 
okay? It doesn't mean we can't be uncomfortable with stories like this. I think part of the reason this story is here is to make us uncomfortable, to shock us, to to make us ask questions and, and really try to figure out why, why would God do this and what's going on. But we have to assume that the God who created the world, who created everyone in it, the God who knows our hearts and our motivations, presumably knows the, the, the future outcomes of certain de- decisions and events, we have to assume and trust that he knows when it is appropriate and when it is not to take someone's life. He obviously feels um, that it is appropriate in this scenario with Ananias and Sapphira. So it's important for us to understand as best we can what's going on. So, so we dive into the story here. Um, I think the first thing that we need to notice and the most important thing to notice is that this scene, whether it's an ancient Jewish person sitting in the room watching this happen, whether it's someone hearing about it uh, weeks later, whether it's someone reading Luke's account of this story, for an ancient Jewish person, this scene would have brought up uh, clear parallels between this event and other events that happened in the Old Testament. They, there would have been stories that came to their minds. It doesn't mean they wouldn't have been shocked by this, but it would have brought up memories, things that they had read about, things that they had heard about. For one, I think a story that would come to mind is in Leviticus 10, where two priests named Nadab and Abihu, they enter the tabernacle, okay, this tent where people were in the presence of God, could make sacrifices to God. And it says in Leviticus 10 that they offer a strange fire, a strange fire before God. And now there are a lot of different ideas and interpretations as to what that means or what exactly they did. But for the purposes of our passage here today, uh, the presence of God consumes them. Okay, it consumes Nadab and Abihu and they fall dead immediately. And it's stories like this that don't happen all the time, but they happen enough where the the priests in the Old Testament used to walk into the Holy of Holies, the center of the tabernacle and the temple with a rope tied to their ankle. Okay, so that if something went wrong, if they were to drop dead in the presence of God, they could be dragged out of there. Okay, so this is what they believed, that, that this, these things could happen. In Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 6, a little bit of a different story, uh, the Israelites are transporting the ark. And if you don't know what the ark is, it's this big uh, handmade, beautiful treasure chest, and they believe this, they put this at the center of the temple. This is where God's presence was, was uh, you know, seated among them. And as they're transporting the ark, um, we're, again, we're dealing with God's presence, the ark begins to fall off the cart. And this man named Uzzah reaches out and catches the ark and immediately he falls dead. Okay, very similar situation to, to our story today. Our last example uh, is a little bit different. Again, it's about a man uh, who is in the presence of God, but he doesn't die, though he is terrified that he will. Uh, it's one of my favorite passages actually in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 6 where the prophet Isaiah has this vision or this dream that he's standing in God's presence. Again, presence of God is a theme with these stories. And he finds himself standing in God's presence in the temple and he's freaking out. Okay, he's freaking out because uh, he, he, he believes that he does not belong there, that he should not be standing in God's presence. He says in Isaiah 6 verse 5, it's all over. I'm doomed for I am a A broken man, I have unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips. Yet I have seen the presence of God. Isaiah thinks that because he is in the presence of God and is not worthy to be in God's presence, that he is going to die. 
That's what Isaiah thinks. Now he doesn't. In fact, the opposite happens. God's presence actually transforms him into someone who is called to God's presence and worthy to be in God's presence and going to work through God's presence. But this is the mindset that the Jewish people have. This is the mindset that the people in the room uh, with Ananias and Sapphira would have had. If you, a broken and sinful and unholy person, enter into the presence of a perfect and holy God, his presence will destroy you. This is what they believed. And in some cases, this is what they witnessed. So Luke, as he presents this story, he wants us to imagine Ananias and Sapphira entering into the temple. Entering into the temple, into the presence of God and offering up a sacrifice as you would if you entered into the temple. They're not just entering into some room in some house to speak to the leaders of the community. They are engaging with and standing before the very presence of God. And this makes a ton of sense in light of the passage that David uh, taught on a few weeks ago, Acts 2, 1 through 13, okay, often referred to as Pentecost, where the presence of God or the Holy Spirit comes down onto the community of believers in the form of fire. Okay, just like God's presence appeared to Moses in the burning bush, just like God's presence came um, uh, as a pillar of fire before the Israelites in the desert, or a fire in the tabernacle or the temple, God's presence came down like fire on the Jesus community so that the community became the place where he dwelt. This community of people became a temple, a temple made up of people. So what Ananias, uh, Ananias and Sapphira don't seem to understand is that they aren't coming before a group of people. They aren't lying to, just lying to some spiritual leaders. They aren't, they are entering into the very presence of God. And they try to deceive God and deceive the community. They enter into God's presence, not just as unholy and unworthy people, but unholy and unworthy people who won't admit it, who pretend to be something else. They're fake, they're deceptive, and it destroys them, just like these stories from the Old Testament. So Luke brings our attention to this Old Testament idea that entering into God's presence is a serious thing. It's a serious thing. It's not something to mess around with. If you enter into his presence in a way that is unholy or deceptive, it could destroy you. So that, that's what's happening in this passage. We got a picture of Ananias and Sapphira and it, it resembles all these uh, Old Testament stories of people entering into the temple of God. And I don't expect that to bring us, us much comfort about what's going on, but hopefully at least it brings a little clarity about what's going on. And now we need to answer the question, what does it mean? Okay, why is this story here? What is God trying to communicate to us through this? What's the takeaway? Okay, what does it mean? So though this passage focuses on the radical generosity, it zeroes in on this radical generosity of the early church community and then highlights two people, right? Ananias and Sapphira who don't, who stand in contrast, right? To that generosity of others in the community. Though it centers on that sort of story, the main point of this passage is not about financial giving. It's not really about generosity uh, at all. Um, though it, that plays a role. 
Luke, one, or I'm sorry, Peter, one of the leaders, as we talked about before, says to Ananias in verse three, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money for yourself. And then this is really important in verse four, okay? He says, the property was yours to sell or not to sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was yours to either give away or not to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. This is what Peter says to Ananias. So what that tells us is the main issue at hand is not their failure to be generous. It was their failure to be honest. The main issue here is deception. And the deception is not in the way that they're offering their money to the community, but in the way that they are offering their, their, their selves, the way that they are offering themselves to the community. Their financial offering that they brought to the community is a reflection of the way that they gave themselves to the community. They engage with the community in, in a deceptive way, deceptively. So here's, here's the main takeaway, and then I'll just unpack it a little bit more to close. The main takeaway, uh, I believe, from this passage is that uh, the sacrifice that a Jesus-centered community requires is your whole and authentic self, okay? If, if the Jesus-centered community, if the church is now the temple of God where God's presence dwells, it would make sense when you enter into that, when you engage with that, that there is a sacrifice that is required. And that sacrifice is not your home, it's not your property, it's not your money, it's yourself. It's your whole and authentic self. In other words, if you pretend to be something that you're not, okay, engaging deceptively with the community will destroy the community and it will destroy you. The sacrifice that being a part of a Jesus community requires is your whole and authentic self. There is a cost to community. There is a cost to community. We need to realize that. We don't often talk about the cost of community. Instead, when we think about community or engaging in church, what we often think about is, what can I get from this community? What is the benefit to me? Are my needs being met? Are my expectations being fulfilled? We talk a lot about the benefits of a community, but we rarely talk about the cost of community. What is this community going to cost me? So whatever community you engage in, whatever relationships you engage in, whether it be your family, your friends, your neighborhood, your church, whatever it may be, if you truly have engaged in real and authentic community, then you know that there is a cost. Something that you have to give up, something that you have to sacrifice. If you want your marriage to succeed, there is a cost. If you want your kids to receive the care that they need to grow up and be uh, healthy individuals, there is a cost. If you want to have friends, if you want to be a good neighbor, there is a cost. There is a cost to engaging in community. There is a cost to engaging in relationship. It may be your time. It may be your preferences or expectations. It may be your own rights. You have to make sacrifices in order for that community to thrive. We know this. And the higher value that you place on that community or that relationship, the higher the cost is. And according to God, there is no community of people uh, that has a higher value and a higher cost than the Jesus community.
the church. There is a high cost to engaging in the church. This is why Jesus says in John 15, 12 through 13, which we happened to talk about last week, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. There is no greater love than this to offer up one's life for their friends. And you might think, well, didn't, you know, didn't the Jesus offer up his life for us? Isn't that what it's all about? He, he offered up his life for us so that we could, we don't have to think about ourselves and our needs. We can offer up our lives wholly to one another and to the community. Paul echoes this in uh, his letter to the church community at Galatia, which is central Turkey. Um, in Galatians 5, 12 through 13, he says, For you have been given freedom. Freedom, brothers and sisters. You have freedom, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your own self, your own desires, your own selfish wants and needs. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Then he quotes Jesus in saying, All the laws can be summed up with this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Being a part of the church community, being a part of a community of people centered on Jesus has an incredibly high value and an incredibly high cost. It costs your whole and authentic self. It requires offering yourself in love to the community and for the community. It requires self-sacrifice. Just as Jesus gave himself for all of us, we as the body of Christ, as the church, are called to give ourselves up for one another. The sacrifice that being a part of a Jesus community requires is your whole and authentic self. So Ananias and Sapphira, they were not willing to pay that cost. Okay, they wanted the benefits of being a part of the community without paying the cost of being a part of the community. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to appear as though they were all in, reap the benefits of being all in without actually being all in. They held things back and they lied about it. And this is more than an issue of financial giving, but it's how they offer their very selves to the community. They present themselves in one way when in fact they are another way. You see, Peter says, you didn't have to sell your land. And once you did, you didn't have to give the money. No one was forcing you to be a part of this. They want to appear radically generous. They want to appear sacrificial like the others in the community. They want to appear as though they're all in, presumably because they feel, they believe that there is some benefit to appearing that way. Whether it be status, whether it be future financial gain from the community, whether, it, uh, whether they believe that maybe if they had a need come up someday, it would be more likely to be met by the community if they gave or, or appeared to be all in. Whatever their motivations may be, they decided that there was some benefit to appearing as though they were all in when in fact they were not. So they presented themselves falsely, inauthentically, deceptively to the rest of the community, and more importantly, to God. They were pretending to be something that they were not. And based on the result, this is a big, big issue for God. A big issue for God. Now, I don't know why God took their lives away. I don't understand why he would respond in this way. Um, uh, but not do the same when far worse 
far more destructive things, far more evil things seem to happen within the church. Okay. I can't explain why he would kill Ananias and Sapphira on the spot, but allow youth pastors to abuse children for years or allow elders to intimidate and manipulate members across the church. Allow all sorts of embezzlement and, and deception and coercion happen in churches all across the world for centuries. Okay, and that for me really makes this passage a little hard to swallow. It doesn't seem to add up. It doesn't seem to be consistent. And, and maybe you're sitting here and you're struggling with that aspect of this passage. And I'd love to process that with you uh, more sometime because I get it. Uh, but unfortunately, we, we won't be able to answer that question of like, why is God not seem consistent on this? Here today, we can't, we can't answer that question, but we still can receive the truth from this passage. We still can try to understand what God is saying to us. God wants us to realize the gravity, the severity, the high value of being a part of a Jesus community. It's a big deal. Okay, It's more than just a group of friends who get together and talk about God. It's more than just a social club. It's more than showing up to some event on Sunday morning. When you engage in a community of people that is truly centered on Jesus, you are engaging with the very presence of God. Okay, it's like entering into the temple in the Old Testament. It's a big deal and we should see it as such. When you engage in a Jesus community, there is a sacrifice that is required. That sacrifice that is required is your whole and authentic self. And I don't know about you, but I fail at this. I fail at this all the time. I think we all fail at this. We are uh, often selfish in our relationships. We are often more concerned about what we can get out of the community rather than what we can offer. Okay, we hold back pieces of ourselves. We deceive others by trying to make ourselves look more generous, more wise, more holy, more under control. We don't want people to see our true selves but that's exactly what God wants us to offer up. Okay, God certainly doesn't expect us to be perfect. Spend any amount of time reading the Bible and you'll see a lot of broken people who do a lot of messed up things. So the issue here is not that we are perfect or that we get everything right. The issue is how we engage with the body of Christ, how we engage with our community, how we engage with one another. Are we all in or are we only in when it's convenient or beneficial to us? Are we willing to sacrifice our time, our energy, and our resources for one another? Or do we only give when we think we will get something in return? Are we honest and authentic with one another? Or do we present ourselves deceptively to try to make others think more highly of ourselves? I think we all at times fail to give ourselves to the body of Christ. We fail to make sacrifices to display generosity, authenticity, and most importantly, love for one another. And though I'm fairly certain he won't deal with us in the way he did Ananias and Sapphira, we will miss out on the true community that God wants us to experience if we aren't able to give ourselves to the community. We will miss out on that true community that he wants us to experience. It'll either destroy the community that we are part of or we will find ourselves feeling like we're on the outside looking in. The sacrifice that being a part of a Jesus commun community requires is your whole and authentic self. How do we engage? 
How do we engage in our community? That's the question we all need to answer. Are we willing to pay the costs required to experience true, life-giving, Jesus-centered community? Or are we going to hold out and miss out on the community that God has for us? The community described here at the beginning of our passage, a community united in heart and mind, a community known for its love and generosity, a community filled with compassionate and selfless people. It's going to take all of us to get there. It's going to take sacrifice from all of us. And we don't stand a chance to ever get there if we don't first realize the great and incredible sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That he gave himself fully and authentically to each one of us. Not so that, we could, he, not so that he could get anything in return. But that we could in turn give ourselves wholly and authentically to one another. He picked up his cross so we could pick up our cross for one another. He laid down his life for us so that we could lay down our lives for one another. He loved us wholly and unconditionally so that we could love one another wholly and unconditionally. The sacrifice that being a part of a Jesus community requires is your whole and authentic self. Let's pray and then we'll spend some time worshiping. God, I just... um, I pray, God, that we can receive the truth that you uh, want to give us from this passage, God. Uh, That we would um, just sit in it, uh, that we would ask ourselves these questions and and ponder, um, what what do you require of us? What do you uh, want from us in these uh, communities that we're a part of? What do we uh, need to offer? And I pray that we would realize that it's nothing short than our whole selves, God. And that we would be totally and wholly filled up by you so that we could turn around and give ourselves fully to those in our lives, those that you've placed in our lives, to our community, uh, to our neighborhood, to our church, whatever it might be, God. I pray that we would be overflowing with love and compassion and self-sacrifice and generosity and that we would always find that we have enough to give to others. And that we'd always go back to you to receive more and be filled up uh, more and more, God. Thank you that you forgive us for when we fail to do this well, God. Thank you that you show us grace. Thank you that you invite us back into community with one another and back into fellowship with you, God. I pray that we would uh, never forget um, your love and forgiveness and grace that you show us every single day. So as we worship you now, God, I pray that we can um, uh, just be thinking clearly, uh, that we can hear from you whatever we need in this moment, God, that you would speak to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.